In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I briefly go over the Sixers' 129-105 win over the Sacramento Kings to improve to 29-13 and on the season. We then dive into the listener mailbag, talking about everything from trade deadline theory and asset management to what to do about backup point guard play if a Kyle Lowry trade doesn't come to fruition, what Matisse Thibel needs to do in order to become a long-term starter in this league, whether or not we are concerned about Shake Milton's struggles from three-point range, and much more. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. Uh, As I saw you in person, uh, last night for the last time in March. The next time we see each other in person will be in April because the Sixers are now about to head off on a six-game road trip. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. It, uh, Yeah, it was a game that I would say lacked a little bit of juice because maybe March Madness is going on. It's a Saturday at 8 o'clock, and the, the Kings were not... Um, very good. good. I guess I'd, yeah. I'd put it that way. Functional. Yeah. Man, I really miss March Madness, by the way. I, I know this college basketball season is kind of stunk from what I can tell, from what little I've watched. Obviously, they're dealing with, you know, a bunch of programs shutting down. You know, you have, I think it was Oregon shutting down, or sorry, VCU shutting down during the tournament. Still, I, I missed it. I mean, it's just a. It's a staple of my life, I guess yeah. I would say. It's yeah. a, it is a part of my year. And to not have it last year, which the only thing that didn't get replayed for the most part in terms of big-time sporting events, obviously a bunch of other ones were uh, were different. It's just been nice. Um, but the King Sixers, that was not part of March Madness. But if it were, it would have been a, what do you think, like a, a 215 maybe? <laughs> yeah. Well, 215s can get scary. Every now and then that happens. Um yeah. Well, By the way, I don't understand this. By real quick, now that we're on this tangent, why is it such a difference between being a 15 and a 16? Seed? I don't know. I don't know. It's just it, 16s I, never win, and 15. Like, I feel like that happens once every three years. What was Lehigh a 16 when they beat Duke that one year? The CJ McCollum. No, year? the only 16. No, they were 15. The were only 15. 16 that ever won was UMBC, the okay. Virginia one. Yeah. No, it, I, I remember when it happened. It was like that was the first time that's happened in. Maybe ever. Um, yeah, 15s, 15s happen yeah. all the time. It, it is it is weird. What's uh, the I difference? Know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I don't, um, know. I don't know. It was just bothering me while, while I was watching. But going, back to the, <laughs> but going back to the tourney, last year, I don't think I really missed it last year because like, that was so right around when it all kind of got real with COVID. So like my mind was in a, a really thousand was, yeah. other different places, and it was like missing out on the tournament. I It was like June. I was like, shit, man. We never had the tournament. Uh, but this year, getting it back, and look, I haven't been as big into college basketball this year as I had in, in previous years, so getting that back into my life was certainly... And look, I got to go dancing with uh, with Drexel. It, it, the you're, com- you're Drexel Dragons, making noise in the, the dance. The competitive part of that I'm game you, lasted about... Fi- if they were 15, they would have had If a they were a 15 seed, they might have been competitive. <laughs> really, there's no difference. The competitive portion <laughs> of that game lasted about five minutes, which is about as long as the competitive portion of the Sixers versus Kings game lasted last night. So I guess that is how we will transition into that topic. Today's episode will mostly be a mailbag-focused episode. 
Not so much strictly a trade deadline focused mailbag. We will get to a trade deadline podcast on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, but this one will be a little bit more about general team. But before we get there, the Sixers, of course, won 129 to 105 over the Sacramento Kings. The 17 and 25 Sacramento Kings. And every time I watch them, I have no idea how they can possibly have 17 wins. Um, that, how did they win in Boston the night before? Yeah, well, Boston couldn't score, too. Uh, talk about it. NBA is a, uh, a make or miss league at times, I guess. Uh, and missing is, I didn't watch that game in Boston, but I assume that the only way Boston could struggle that much is by missing a lot of wide open looks. Because that defense is horrendous. Legitimately, Hard. and I, I looked, and I'm pretty sure they have the worst defensive rating in league history. Now, that can be a little misleading because offense is trending upward. Uh, offensive ratings in general are better now than they were five years ago and better than they were 10 years ago and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so having like, if you're the worst defensive team in current day, you're probably the worst defensive team by the numbers of all that, time. That being that said, said, I would, I would take them <laughs> adjusted for a lot of errors yes. of, of basketball. <laughs> that is a real bad. And it, it, it's, it's, it's so fun. I was watching, I, I told this to you before the pod, but I'll, I'll bring it up. I was watching, some clips from last night and one of the clips came up from the um, Kings broadcast and they mentioned that Buddy Heald after that uh, Celtics win had mentioned that Rashawn Holmes should be in the running for an all defensive team. And first of all, Rashawn is not a good defender. He's an overrated defender. He always has been. I remember when he was at Bowling Green at the Mac and I think he won defensive player of the, of the year award there. And I remember watching him being like, no, this, this is an offensive player in the NBA. Like he's got real rolling skills. He has no idea what to do defensively, but he put a big block numbers. And that's always sort of been the case with him. He, he, the team concepts are just not there with him. It's still not there with him, but when you're the worst defense of all time, you're not getting a spot on all, even if Rashawn was deserving of it, which I don't think he is. There's no chance when your defense is that bad. And that defense is fucking (laughs) awful. It's like, they just, they don't talk to each other. They don't rotate. They don't have any team concepts whatsoever. And then they have a bunch of bad one-on-one defenders anyway. And also they give up halfway through the game. They are real, real bad, but it made for a, a good win on a night where, you know, you go in, um, you obviously know you're without uh, Joel Embiid. You're without Seth Curry, who's going to miss at the very least these two games uh, last night and now against the Knicks. And you find out just a little bit before the game, right, right around, I guess, Doc Rivers press conference time. Or no, it was after that. It was between Rivers press. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, it, was. Mush. it was, it was, um, it was like an hour before the game. Yeah. yeah. So it was between Rivers press conference and the actual game. You find out that Ben Simmons isn't going to play. So you're looking at it. You're like, man, you're down. You're down. Not only three starters, but three of you are like real key players. Uh, how are you going to win? And then you find out how you're going to win is, oh, you're just going to execute against the worst defense I've ever seen in my life. Um, so they came out. A big game from, it was nice to have a nice bounce back performance from Shake Milton, who has struggled at times this year. Got the free throw line 11 times, uh, protein Shake Milton. A huge game from Tobias Harris, who was two assists away from a triple-double. 29 points on 18 shots, 11 rebounds, 8 assists, no turnovers, which was nice to see. Just a real solid team performance against a, look, that's a Sacramento team where if you make three passes, they've got no shot. As long as you don't fuck up in the first three passes, you're pretty much going to score. And uh, and they executed well in that regard, for sure. Yeah, it's Tony Bradley beating them down the floor and posting up Halliburton and Corey Joseph. And they had, and no, they had no answer. To, <laughs> to oblivion, and, yeah. And that's part of, like, you look at, at Harris's eight assists. And look, I don't want to, like, he was close to his first career triple-double. It would have been nice for him to get it. Some of those assists were like, well, here's a dribble handoff. 
we're here. I'm just going to feed right. Tony Bradley in the post and make an entry pass, um, which again, feeding Tony Bradley in the post shouldn't be an easy way to an assist, but that is a, a, a Kings team that was just dreadful, just absolutely. Dre- and you start that game off and you're like, well, they're starting off Tony Bradley, Danny Green and Matisse Thibel. I don't know how they're going to score. And again, the answer to scoring is just move the ball around and they'll eventually fuck up. I think you mentioned that Rashawn isn't a first team all defensive team player. If you compare him to Marvin Bagley, he he might be Marvin oh, yeah. Bagley, who I can't say I watch all the time, but I have certainly seen enough clips of his pick and roll defense clipped by national NBA writers. And it's rough, man. It's like, he is not even close to in the, uh, in the right position. And yeah, I would echo everything you said about that. And yeah, we, we don't want to spend too much time on this game. I, I guess, the main takeaway for me, though, is a continuation of what we've seen since the All-Star break. This team, very shorthanded in this one. Now, now, like you said, they did have a little bit of a rest advantage. The Kings were second night of a back-to-back. The Sixers did have a chance to, I really think, like a chance to practice and run through some actual offensive plays. That might be underrated in the sure. pandemic season. I, I wonder... It feels like the Sixers do pretty well when they get a chance to practice, but you know, I, I wonder if that transfers over to I, other teams. I, don't, but... I truthfully don't know if if people listening to this understand how infrequently they practice. It happens like once a month, maybe. And what? do they have like walkthroughs and shoot arounds where they will go over concepts? Of course, but like actually getting everyone in the gym to practice very rarely. It's 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 a it's a rare occurrence for sure. So, so that was an advantage. You know, like you said, like down your two all stars, down Seth Curry, your your best floor spacer, and they just destroyed him. I mean, it's it's really what has happened since the All Star break. In the six games since the All Star break, the Sixers have a plus sixteen point six net rating. That is first in the league by a mile. Now, have they played a complete murderer's row of teams? No. But they also have had four combined games from Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And, you know, you could say that's three and a half for Embiid because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't finishing out the game that he, he got hurt in that one. They are, uh, I mean, just really good offensive execution. I, I agree with you. Some of Harris's assists in that game were of the the cheapy variety. I also would say, though, he had a bunch of hockey assists where the Kings would screw sure. up. And I, I really just thought, you know, the, the Kings defense is a big part of it. but it was really impressive to see how in control he was as a, a wing oh, initiator. Yeah. Yep. He, he, he made the right decision every time. And oftentimes the right decision for him was the one they, they usually rely on him to do is just score. And, uh, and he did that very well. Also big game from Milton. I, yeah, I, I don't want to go too much on, on this game because we, we have other things to get to, but I'm just really impressed at all of a sudden how they're taking care of business shorthanded. It's something that, we did not see in past years. Like I'm thinking at the end of the 2018, 19 season, that's a very good team. That team could have won an NBA championship when they were shorthanded at the, at the end of the year. They were not trying. They were not competitive. They didn't care. We know what the hell happened last season. The only real at the beginning of this year, the only real comparable would be 2017, 18. That's 2017, like the, the one exception. Yep. And if you want to say, yeah, and I, I agree. That was an amazing run, especially after Embiid ran into Fultz's shoulder. But at least, it, you know, the one thing was at the end of the year, the Sixers were playing for the three seed while a bunch of teams were tanking. And that was at the very, very, right. that was still a very impressive run, though. 
Um, and also, too, that was like Redick and Bellinelli shooting an insane percentage from three. This is, yeah, they're doing this with depth. And it's uh, it came out of nowhere because at the beginning of the season, Tobias said it at the uh, after the game. He was like, at the beginning of this year, we were losing one of them. We were screwed. We, we were not doing it. And he talked about, like, I, you know, I, I take this personally. Like, we, we need to be competitive. We need to still win these games. Um, I would have laughed at that statement a few weeks ago, even a few months ago. But, you know, this has been a very unexpected stretch of like San Antonio Spurs level of we're going to play six guys and still be competitive. Yeah. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks. And we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TA Basketball and you'll get a one year subscription to The Athletic. Plus, up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TA Basketball. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas, Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at one 866 2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge sports betting is void in georgia hawaii and utah and other states where prohibited promotional offers not available in nevada and new york don't forget if you haven't signed up for bet mgm yet use the bonus code ta basketball and you'll get a one year subscription to the athletic plus up to a one thousand dollar first bet offer on your first wager yeah it is uh they are playing really good basketball right now for sure and over that stretch their defensive rating has now jumped up to second in the league, uh, even with, with Embiid missing the time that he has. They are, uh, look, and when we took a step back, remember when Embiid went down, we said, man, if they could even go like four or six or even like if they could somehow figure out five and five, like that would put them in a really good spot if Joel Embiid does only end up missing those two to three weeks. Well, they're up, what, three and one in their first four. So even if they go, you know, two and four, uh, they're in a spot where they can they they have done enough work here against the easy part of this ten game stretch, where they have a little bit of cushion, where they can be in a, a pretty good spot when Joel comes back, and that is that is huge. We said it at the beginning when he went out, like this number one seed or even a top two seed isn't no consideration. Like this this could have actual importance to their their bid to make a run to the uh, NBA Finals. It would be much easier as a one seed. It would be. You'd, better as a two seed than a three seed. If they can figure this out and keep them within, uh, you know, punching distance, that would be huge. And so far they have done that. Um, and that's, that's taking care of business against teams who are um, bad defensively. That's taking care of business against teams who are on the second half of a back to back. And for them to do that, it has been key for sure. For sure. We'll, you know, we'll see how they do against the harder portion of the schedule. West coast trips are, are generally pretty unforgiving. That said, they've made me a little bit of a believer, at least a wait and see level believer that they can exceed my, they've probably already exceeded my expectations. 
So yeah. uh, good start. Let's let's get to the mailbag. All right. Uh, this one from Julian. If the primary strategy for the next three years was to surround Ben Joel and Tobias with shooting without making a big trade, which he is defining as any player worth more than two first round picks, would that be a good enough philosophy for you? I mean, so for me, where like there's too much detail not included in this, but generally speaking, and like you know, if, if yeah, maybe you keep two first round picks, but you trade Thibel and Maxi, like that to me is is still a a, a major big trade. To to me, it, it no, um, I and I think I think Daryl Morey probably falls on this side too. Those players who are really really good, re- like. This year at the trade deadline, we might talk about Kyle Lowry uh, because he is is probably the best fit and talent available. Other years, that might be higher than that. You might be talking about a Drew Holiday-esque player. You might be even talking about a Bradley Beal-esque player. Those kind of players have a pretty oversized impact on winning, especially winning a championship, especially winning you know, playoff rounds and playoff series and being able to match up. Um, no, I think, I think Daryl is going to be aggressive in trying to get really, really good players. And that's going to involve multiple first round picks that might involve some of these young players that you are attached to. I would guess that Daryl Morey's definition of untouchable is probably different than a lot of Sixers fans definition of untouchable uh, because we tend to get attached to our, our players, but no, I don't think like, I don't think Daryl's <laughs> going to be like, I'm going to spend one first round pick on this role player and one first round pick on this role player and a second round pick. I don't think he's going to try to win an NBA championship with these minor deals and he might make minor deals, because a maybe they're the, the best available, or 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 b maybe he thinks he can take those assets and flip them into something bigger later on down the line. But I I, I would guess Daryl is going to be pretty have his his eyes open for the major deals if they are available, and I generally think that is the right approach. Now it starts to become tricky because you look at it like well Joel Embiid's having an MVP season they could contend maybe in in practice or in theory I would typically want to save my assets for the, the major deal for the including two first round picks and a young player for a, a real all-star caliber player. But you know, this bench player or this borderline starter might help us have a chance to win this year. So we, 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 we adjust our thinking because Joel Embiid is so far into his, his prime and having such a good season. Um, but no, I would, I, I would generally speaking without any kind of details, um, or specifics on the details, I would I would say a big trade is probably likely at some point over the next three years. So, so the way I think about it, and maybe you would agree with this, if the primary strategy is, well, first off, we don't have the assets to swing a big trade right now. If it's to surround those guys with shooting to eventually land right to that point where, where you can swing the big trade, I, I think that is... A, I think that is what the strategy is. Sure. And B, yeah, I mean, it's, you're making the best of your your situation, and that seems to be what it is. I am, uh, you know, honestly, listening to you talk about that, just thinking about what they have to trade, right? They have their first-round picks these next couple of years. Do you, do you think it's worth trading a first-round pick if it's not a big trade? A blockbuster-type deal? No. Um no, I think the like, answer is probably no, right? And, you want to keep that powder dry. Sure, sure. Yeah. Although, I, although to be fair, although to be fair, like 2023 is the last. Right, the 2025, the Stepian rule comes into play at some right. point, right? Or Stepian. Yep. yep. Stepian. 
Um, you just wonder though, um, you know, cause I've seen a bunch of trades proposed and, you know, I'm not sure a first round pick is, is worth anything, but like a Kyle Lowry type this year. Now, and maybe that requires two, but it, it almost feels like there's a, uh, you know, go big or, or go small type type of uh, yeah. idea here. The, and I think the, if you the middle through, ground, it's not worth. I think if you look through Daryl's history, um, he's not going to spend a first round pick to acquire Daniel house. He's going to try to find the next Daniel house. Like he thinks he can build his role players through, you know, undrafted free agents through developing in the G league. I think he's, he invests a lot in trying to get the top pieces and a lot of effort in trying to flesh out the rest of the roster. I don't think he's going to give, um, trying to think of a name, but uh, no, I, I would agree with that. Like right now, absent a big move, surround him with shooting. But I think, I think a big move, even if not necessarily in the plans, is always going to be something he's going to be on the lookout for. And I, I generally think that is the right move. So and that's also, of, you know, we we mentioned that we mentioned that in terms of a first round pick. I'll eyeball as somebody who is just as valuable as a first round pick, maybe more so. I, I don't know. But basically, I don't think Thibault is getting moved unless it is a somewhat big. Yeah. Yeah. No, right? it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a small move for sure. For sure. Um, he, he is great. Like people have gotten a little angry at why are you including Thibault in a trade? Yeah. And and really, it's it's a compliment, right? The, the idea of, well, the Sixers don't have a lot of good things to trade. And typically to get something really good, which we define as Zach Levine, Kyle Lowry, whatever, so, somebody of that caliber. You need to give something back to the other team that is young and has some promise, which Matisse qualifies. The the thing is, though, I, there was probably a point early in this season where I was like, hey, trade Matisse for a depth piece or something like that. I'm not sure I would complain that much. I certainly think he has graduated from that tier of trade. Sure. I, I'm not, you said Daniel House, whatever, like another bench player. Uh-uh, not trading Matisse for that guy. Yeah. No, I think that is. I think that is probably the right way to look at it. Uh, cool. Uh, all right. So next question um, from Senor Talon again. Assuming the Lowry deal doesn't come to fruition, would you rather A, get DJ Augustine as a buyout or B, trade an asset for George Hill? This dovetails into the discussion we were having pretty nicely, right? The, you know, the depth pieces, what are you giving up? So... What what is the asset for George Hill? Is it a second round pick? Is it your best second round pick? Because if that is the answer, I would rather have George Hill. Right, um, and I think that's probably so. George Hill's missed a a lot of time here with uh, I think it was a thumb injury. I think it was a thumb on a shooting hand. Uh, I think it, it basically I, I don't know exactly what happened, but it was deemed a minor injury. But he's he's missing four to six weeks because of it, so he hasn't played in quite a while. So maybe that drives down his asking price a little bit, uh, or their asking price for him. Uh, Lord knows OKC will always be on the lookout for a first round pick if you'll offer it. I'm not sure George Hill is getting a first round pick at this year's deadline. And if that's the case, if we're talking a second or even maybe like one decent second and one second a long time in the future, I would prefer George Hill. I think he is a better player at this stage. I think that's a pretty substantial upgrade uh, defensively. I would prefer George Hill if it costs a second. If we're talking about a first round pick, then I would go for DJ Augustine is sort of how I would answer that. Yeah, first round picks for for bench or average players, I'm going to say no to for the most part here. Uh, just don't think these guys are going to move the needle that much. 
but but George Hill to me, despite the the down season, his track record of shooting and just kind of kind of steadier, reliable play. I know I know Augustine has has generally been like you know one season good, one season bad, one season good. But uh, yeah, I, I would rather have him if the price is uh, is low enough. But yeah, like like you said though, um, you know if we're talking first round pick for him, I, I'm not doing it. So. All right, this one from Sixers in seven. If you were the GM, would you be trading for JJ Redick right now? No, no. Uh, we I, we sort of answered this a little while ago. I think JJ has been okay lately. Uh, I know he just got injured uh, recently. I think it was his heel, but over like pretty much from you know he was struggling a lot earlier in the season, uh, and and it came up that he was a potential trade target. And we said, no, wait until the buyout market, see if he can turn his season around. He has been shooting a lot better since then. I think in the, oh, I'm pulling up the stats right now. In the 15 games, um, most recent 15 games since he went out of the lineup, he was shooting 46.4% from three-point range. It turns out J.J. Redick didn't forget how to shoot. Uh, so that is good to see. Uh, but I still, especially when you factor in his age, his injury, uh, and the fact that he's just not playing a huge role with new Orleans right now, I would wait to see if he hits the buyout market. If we're talking, and would I give up like a second round pick for JJ? Sure. The problem is matching that salary. You're going to have problem to is trade. Matching it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't want to give up Danny green and a second round pick. So you can match that salary. What is JJ's contract right now? Could you do that for without like, could um, Mike Scott and, I think it's like- and something get you there? I don't think so. It's like 12 or 12 or 13 million. And, and it's like you said, yeah, 13. You know, the Sixers only have so many small averages salaries that they can match with. And, you know, like, let's say George Hill is available. I would rather have the George Hill more of a ball handler type archetype than J.J. Redick. We, we, we've kind of talked about how the Sixers, despite their bench playing well, you can make an argument that they have a need at every position up and down the uh, the spectrum. And you know, while I think a movement shooter would be nice, I would rate that a little lower down the uh, down the the, the needs um, yep. hierarchy than uh, than some of the other ones. So that's really what the problem is. Like, it, if you had a bunch of matching salary and contracts you could hand out, would JJ be worth a second round pick? Yeah, maybe to this team, especially with how he could contribute. But to me, I think the uh, the strategy would be just hope he hits the buyout market. And uh, there's a chance that he, uh, I think he might. So we'll see. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. All right. This one from uh, Hotch. How likely is Thibault to develop into a quality plus value fourth or fifth starter someday? He is clearly there on defense. If he can hit open threes at 38%, would that be enough? Sure. <laughs> but so, so it's not just that he, needs hit open threes. He needs to take open threes. Yeah. You know, we're watching the game against Sacramento on uh, on Saturday night. And by the way, I guess the one thing we didn't mention from that game, another just Thibel going about his business, making De'Aaron Fox's you life. You know, that, that chase down he had when he got, he got brushed off on a screen, was maybe like six feet behind uh, Fox on the drive and just came back and swatted it from behind and saved it. That was incredible. That was incredible. Amazing save too. Yeah. It, you know, and, and he, he wasn't alone. Fox had a little bit of an off shooting night, but yeah, I mean, it's just 
Thibel going about his business, making another all-star or star-level guard's life hell. Um, but even against a bad Sacramento defense, he's getting wide open threes from Tobias at times, and he's passing them up. And yep. to you know, it was nice. He made a couple. You know, there was one possession where Tobias, I think he came off a pick and roll. Fox was helping really far off Thibel at the nail, and he fired it right away and shot it. That needs to be automatic every time because I, I guess my problem with Thibel's offense is I, I don't really see another way he develops besides just making threes. Yeah. The the ball handling, the passing, everything is just so dicey uh, that he needs to shoot that at a at a high level. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a strange player. But, uh, yeah, if he – like when Harris or Embiid or Simmons gives him the wide-open three – if he shoots 38% on those and he's not hesitant shooting them, then yeah, of course that's enough. That's a, that's a, definitely a, a quality fourth or fifth start. Yeah. And like some of that, like you mentioned, I think he shoots like four three point attempts per 36 minutes. That's got to go up. And this is where you almost hope like maybe Danny green can teach him a little bit. Cause Danny green is real good at getting open off ball, especially in the corner. Um, Thibault needs to learn some of that, and he just needs to have the confidence to take him. Some of that will come with success. He is shooting 40% from three-point range since February 1st. I don't entirely buy that. He, Especially because it's like two threes a game. It's <laughs> almost exactly two threes a game. Uh, so we're talking small sample size, and I think sometimes with Thibault, when we, he has these stretches where he does run through a, a hot spell on a small sample size, we tend to pretend that this is now the new normal for Thibel. Uh We did it last year in the middle of the season. He, I, I go back to this all the time. He shot like 55% from three over like a month and a half stretch and went, oh man, is pencil this kid in for the next decade. And then he couldn't make a shot the rest of the year. And when <laughs> Thibel goes through the shot, those periods where he can't make a shot, he is like borderline unplayable offensively. He was at the beginning of the season. He was at the beginning and the end of last season. And he certainly can be in the playoffs when you have a chance to really tee off and like if he is unplayable offensively in the playoffs, you can't just yada yada that, especially not on this team. And other teams will know how to take advantage of his lack of shooting. I still think good teams, good defensive teams right now don't respect him out on the perimeter. And that has pretty massive impact on Embiid, on Simmons, on even Tobias. Uh, there is, I still have some concern about Matisse in a playoff atmosphere. And I have concern because I love his defense so much. If his defense wasn't great, okay, whatever. Write him off as a prospect. He is is scary to me because his defense is so unique and is so impactful and is so much fun to watch uh, and is something that I have a lot of confidence in. Uh, he needs to make enough shots and take enough shots where he can uh, you can you can live with that. Yeah. When uh, I guess last thing I have on Matisse is. Despite whatever reservations I have about him in the future, you know, we're talking about winning shorthanded right now and and players stepping up. Going into the game last night, you know, after they said that all of the top players were going to be out, if you asked me, like, walking into the building, what is the most exciting thing of the night, potentially? My answer would have been unequivocally Matisse Thibault guarding yep. Darren Fox. Yep. And by the way, that, that's going to be the answer a lot of nights. He is so much fun to watch and by the way when you start looking at a playoff matchup with brooklyn like he you you would need him in that series because of of how he can defend one of their their three uh you just need him to be he he, you need him to make your defense better not to make both teams defense better (laughs) and that is uh still a a pretty big concern with with matisse for sure well put
All right, this one from Nap, Nap Attack. Not a bad idea. Um, I've been relatively unconcerned with Shake's poor shooting this year, thinking he's just in a slump, but lately it feels like the form on his threes has been deteriorating and looks like he's shooting a medicine ball. How concerned are you? Yeah, I would just echo how you put it. I've been relatively unconcerned with this shooting up until the last month or so, and I agree with you. It seems like, I don't know, like he's like, he like has falling always, down on his shots. He has know. always had a little bit of a in front of his body um, yeah. shooting motion to it. Uh, so I think it's always sort of looked a little bit like a medicine ball. You know, I think I think I've just seen him hesitate more than he has in the past, uh, especially on those pull ups that he was just like when you're talking last March and in the bubble, he was just letting them fly. And I think maybe that hesitation makes it look like that in front of the body. Mechanics look maybe a little bit more pronounced and a little bit more um, different than what we had seen in the past. But yeah, he look, he's, am I concerned long-term? No, probably not. Because it's not like, it'd be one thing if he was struggling to get to his spots or struggling to get those shots and defenses had learned what to take away from him. I don't really see that too much. I just think he's struggled from the perimeter. I think it's gotten into his head a little bit and he's just not as effective I, th- I think confidence with Shake is going to be big um, because he needs to take those. Sh- like he's not going to have a day and a half to have an open shot. Um, he needs to take those shots when they're there, and it, he just seems like he's hesitating a tiny bit. I don't know. It's it's weird. He his form is a little bit in front of his body. If you notice on his free throws, he's and he's a very good free throw shooter. He he basically falls midway into the the paint on the uh, on the shot, which is fine. I mean, I think they they teach you to fall forward generally as a shooter, but I don't know. Some of the misses recently have been, I don't know. They've been pretty bad. I've seen like some left and right misses, which is like, that's the ones you don't want to see. Um, Yeah. It's tough because when he's not making his threes, that really affects his ability to get to his spots. Because as I've made the joke a million times, this is going to be a million and one. He does not have the shake to create, these amazing looks for himself and you see a lot of you know he's like running into defenders yep there is a lot of contact on shake milton drives i'll put it that way and i don't think they're fouls for the most part i think it's him initiating it well he he certainly thinks that they're fouls he thinks he should be shooting 20 free (laughs) but I, i think you can see that when he is making that shot and teams have to respect it a little bit more even just a half step thinking oh shit this guy's a really good shooter that makes a difference those drives become cleaner the the mid-rangers become easier and right now he's fighting it i mean honestly his game against the kings was it was pretty interesting he was really the only guy at the beginning of the game who sucked he midway through the second quarter you had everybody on the team executing on offense at an insanely high level and him sucking a couple turnovers one of six from the field Doc literally put Maxi at the scorer's table, shake with the most well-timed transition and one bucket because Doc pulls him back and then shake goes on to score 28 points. Thank you, Sacramento Kings. It's been an interesting season for him. I'm not, um, I'm certainly not concerned enough to take him out of like the rotation. I'm certainly not concerned enough to put him in trade talks because I am a believer that he can be, a good version of, of what they have him as now the one of the main initiators on a, on a bench unit, but yeah, he's, 
he certainly has not been as consistent and that's a that's a, a big reason for it has been the shot yeah and like you mentioned he doesn't have the athleticism the quote-unquote shake to just come blazing off of a screen he needs you to be terrified of him pulling up off of that screen to really be at his best and teams haven't been uh that way in in, in a little bit now and i think it's affected his overall game a little bit but i it's it, it, i i do think the shot will come back around i do i do uh this one from patrick uh and this will be our final question how concerned should we be about other teams replicating Toronto's defensive scheme on Joe in the playoffs? Does it require their specific defensive talent? So I have a good answer for this one. As to say, my, the rest of my answers have been bad. Uh, but I, I have been thinking about this a lot. So think about a team like Brooklyn, right? You know, let's say they play Jeff Green at center. Let's say that they determine whether they're playing DeAndre or they're going super small probably they're going to determine, all right, we can't guard this guy one-on-one consistently. That's, that's going to be, you know, if you do the, the strategy Boston did in the playoffs last year and you have Ben and you have Tobias playing at this level, maybe they add another player. You're probably screwed. uh, If, if, if you do that, you would imagine regardless like of who the center is, they are going to say at some point we're going to double, right? Because, you know, Toronto doubles and everybody doubles, but Toronto does it better than everybody. I do think like as good as Brooklyn is offensively, you can't just say, we're going to double, we're right. going to do the right. Toronto game plan. I I think Toronto is one of the more unique teams in the league, the way they are coached, their defensive personnel. That And by the way, this is why, you know, I was talking with Blake Murphy about this. If Thibel did get moved to Toronto in the Lowry trade, terrifying. Yeah. What, what a fit. Because first off, they'd probably develop him as an offensive player better than most organizations. But for what he already does on the defensive end, I, I mean, you know, him and like Chris Boucher just allowed to be wild men rotating and, and blocking three point shots. Basically, what I'm saying is if you put James Harden and Kyrie Irving yeah. into that scheme yeah, no. and you make them play with connectivity, if you make them play with multiple efforts, I, I think there's been a lot of talk recently of, well, Harden's not a bad one-on-one defender. If if you have to post him up, if you, uh, you know, if Kyrie's locked in, he can he can play the scheme and and guard guys one-on-one. Okay, yeah, but th- when you double, that's a different thing. Right. That's that's a team defensive concept. And, and frankly, like if you don't have Baines at the initial point of attack on Joe. I, basically, what what I'm saying is, if like if Brooklyn tries to double Joel Embiid, and is not completely bought into it, and playing at a higher level of defense than we have seen from them, frankly, right now, I don't think they can replicate Toronto's no. scheme. I think it might be pretty bad, honestly. Uh, even so. even teams with good defenders and and good defense, and part of Toronto's success is they've always, um, you know, sort of tracked those guys who do have length, who do have multi positional defensive versatility and who can recover quickly who are real good recover defenders even if you have those players so much of that is scheme and and instinct and and just knowledge of where your help responsibilities are because they are constantly in rotation and with even a slight hesitation a slight bit of uncertainty where you're not a hundred percent sure where you're supposed to go you're we're talking you're we're talking a quarter of a second right we're just we're just we're not talking about even getting it wrong we're just talking about a, a hesitation a, a step in the wrong direction a, a 
second where you think about it, you're screwed. You're screwed. And it, it, it goes from, well, shit, we have no idea how to cover Embiid to shit. We have no idea how to cover Shake Milton because he's wide open now all the time. Um, it would be very tough to do. You know, Toronto is unique in the fact that they don't, they didn't devise that scheme to get Embiid. That's just their scheme. And they've been running it so long and they've personnel has has so bought in and is so ingrained in their culture that it just so happens they are a experts at it and b it works really well against them b uh, i don't think you can just be even um even like i said good defensive teams i don't think you can just switch on the fly like that i think that would be a hard system to adapt specifically for joel uh, i do could could a team like boston maybe figure out something like that with Tatum and Brown. I mean, God, the Celtics might be the 10 seeds. So they certainly not even have to worry about, they that. certainly have the personnel to do that. Yeah. So they might have the personnel, but you, you look at a team like Toronto, they have Siakam, they have Boucher, they have Anunoby. They have these guys that I, I look at the, the Brooklyn behemoth on offense. And I trust me, I, I think that's your, probably your title favorite right now, but I don't think they're going to be able to execute that scheme. And by the way, the, the unspoken thing is, you know, may, maybe not with the length, but I'm trying to think of a player who, you know, you, you talked about making decisions on, on time, not hesitating for half a second. To, to have a guy like Kyle Lowry yeah. rotating in the middle of it, who, you know, I think a lot by all um, accounts from Toronto, he's lost a little bit of a step as a one on one defender. He's not lost, lost the ability to process and diagnose uh you know off ball passing and uh you see him take charges and the reason he can do that is that he's always in the right position yep. and he's always one step ahead of you when it comes to rotating so yeah i i don't think a lot of people can replicate toronto's defensive scheme um but but is it still the right way to go about guarding the sixers probably it's just it's just hard to pull off with Embiid playing at the level we saw from him this year. Yeah, and if this were Embiid in previous years, like if this were Embiid of two years ago, where he's making those hesitations out of those double teams, then you have a chance. You have a chance to recover even if you're not perfect. But Embiid, and a lot of Embiid's success isn't like these high-level, crazy creative passes he's making out of the post. It's just he's kicking it out to his outlets much quicker than he was in previous years. Uh, And as long as he does that and he doesn't revert back to some of the forced shots or um, bad decisions out of the post when he's doubled, he should be fine against a team like Brooklyn trying to implement that on the fly in the playoffs. For sure. Can you tell that I really want to see them play Brooklyn in the playoffs? I would I would very much enjoy watching yeah? probably probably games in the 130s despite being <laughs> yeah. half-court games. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It would, uh, it would be fun. It would be fun. Um, I'd like to see Milwaukee too. I think Milwaukee would be interesting. Um, yeah. Milwaukee this, this week, I, I thought, you know, their defensive personnel, they, they got some things to to iron out in terms of their, uh, their depth, but I, I like their, their switchability and defensive personnel for sure. All right. I think that's probably a good place to cut it off here. Uh, we are now up there in time. Like I said, we will have a more trade deadline focused podcast here in a couple of days. If you want to send in, um, we're not doing a specific mailbag podcast, but if you have some trade specific questions, send them into mailbag at sixersbeat.com. And if we don't have a lot to talk about, there all might make four trades between now and Tuesday. So maybe we won't have time for mailbag. Maybe we will, who knows, but send them in and we might be able to get to them. Thank you, Rich for jumping on and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.